Welcome to the Project Fitness Podcast for fitness professionals and fitness enthusiasts who want to be better at life. Fitness is the greatest investment of anyone's life. However, it's not easily obtained, and anyone who says different is just plain wrong. Join award-winning personal trainer and strength conditioning coach Chris Fudge every Monday as he explores all aspects of fitness that can lead you to your optimal health. If you want to learn useful, practical how-tos of weight loss, exercise science, nutrition, or just how to optimize your time in the gym and life, this show is for you. And welcome everyone to another episode of the Project Fitness Podcast. Today we are sitting down with a very unique guest. Today our guest is a gut health expert. In the training industry, gut health is something that is very important to a lot of people, yet still kind of taboo. Our expert today is a microbiologist, and he's also the creator of the Fast Track Diet, author of the Fast Track Digestive Book Series, and publisher of the Fast Track Diet mobile app. Today, our guest is Dr. Norm Robillard. Dr. Norm, how are you doing today? Uh, pretty good. Thanks, Chris. Thanks for having me. Very nice to have you on board here because the group of individuals that tends to listen to this podcast here are health enthusiasts. These are people mm. that like to work out. These are personal trainers. These are strength conditioning coaches. And we all like to work out. We all like to eat. But sometimes, sometimes people get digestive issues. And I think there's a lot of fallacy out there about what's good for our health, what's not good for our health, especially with our gut health. Mm. Absolutely. And having you on here today, there's going to be a few different specific topics that I, I want to bring up and have your expertise weigh in on it. And right off the bat, one of the most common things that we tend to see as personal trainers, we have our clients come in, it's always on Monday, how are you feeling today? And on Mondays they say, well, I feel pretty good except I got a little bit of acid reflux. Yeah. And then we always have these go-tos that we would normally say, but you you stumbled into this career through acid reflux, Correct. I did. Well, I, you know, I've always been a microbiologist. That was my formal training. Uh, but I was in the biotech industry and I was working on new drugs and antibiotics and all of that stuff. And I never really gave diet a second thought. Mm -hmm. So I did stumble into that part because of my own chronic acid reflux that I had about 15 years ago. Mm -hmm. And can you, can you weigh in on that? I mean, like your story is unique like everyone else's, but then you kind of found another route about how to treat it. Hmm. Yeah. And, and it was kind of an accident. It was an accidental observation that I just got curious about. So, you know, this was many years ago. I was working, uh, I had worked at Bayer Pharmaceuticals up in the Bay Area. Then I went down to Amgen. I was in Thousand Oaks uh, and my schedule was real busy and you know, I was eating whatever, as I always had been. I was in my uh, maybe early to mid forties. And um, I had just over the years developed this terrible acid reflux situation. Uh, it was really impacting my life and just making it hard to get on with my daily business. And at night, I was having um, problems too, because I was in my sleep, I was refluxing and I was aspirating the reflux into my lungs mm -hmm. and waking up and kind of shock and terror, you know, can't breathe, fires in my lungs, what, what the hell's going on? And uh, it, it, I had taken Tums, you know, PPIs, Nexium, um, other H2 blockers, and they never really, they helped the symptoms a little bit, but I could still feel like I was refluxing and regurgitating. I knew it just, I wasn't well, it was still going on. But that changed when my son, who was an athletic trainer at the time, uh, talked me into going on a, on a low carb diet. We had bought a treadmill. We were going to start working out, losing a few pounds. Mm -hmm. 
And, uh, but something weird happened just a couple of days into this diet. Um, and I was, I had bought the book protein power from Dr. Michael and Mary Dan Eads. And that was really a great book in the nineties on, you know, the, the health aspects of low carb. And so I went really low carb to lose weight for a couple of days, forget about the weight loss. My reflux was so much better. It was pretty much gone as long as I stayed really low carbohydrate. And I was like, that's really weird, you know, and, and, you know, Google it. Other people were making the same observation as I was. And it, there was actually a little snippet in, in the Eads book on, on heartburn getting better with low carb. So people knew about this, uh, you know, if you went on this diet, it would help your reflux. Um, but why? I, I really got curious about why, because when you dug into the medical literature, the, the theories were that it had to do with this uh, set of sphincter muscles on top of your stomach. They were loose. They were too loose. They were relaxing spontaneously. There was tons of research on it. It was, it was dogma. It was basically, it was unchallenged for mm -hmm. 50, 60 years. This was what was causing reflux. These muscles, they were, they were problematic. But I started thinking about what, what, how can carbohydrates fit into this equation? So I just decided, you know, as a microbiologist and, and, you know, and somebody trained in the sciences, I thought it shouldn't be too complicated to just follow the food groups through the digestive process, carbs, proteins, and fats, right? And when, so, you know, your mouth, you chew it up, you swallow it, your stomach, your stomach acid, your pepsin and so forth. And then it enters the small intestine. And, you know, the first day I started thinking about this, a light bulb went off in my head because I had worked on a lot of bacteria, including intestinal microorganisms, E. coli, uh, Bacteroides fragilis, and so forth. And I knew a couple of things about these microbes. Mm -hmm. They love carbohydrates, especially in the early part of the digestive tract. And they feast on them and they produce a lot of gas. Mm. And so... I just, it hit me like a ton of bricks. I, th I think I know what's going on. I'm on my high carb diet, all the pasta and, you know, rice and things I was eating. Um, I was probably not digesting and absorbing all of those carbs very well and that they were overfeeding my microbes. They were producing a lot of gas and this gas pressure was translating, you know, in the intestines and then in the stomach and it was driving reflux. And, and the analogy I always use is dropping like a Mentos into a bottle of Coke. Mm -hmm. It was a completely new way of looking at this. And so I thought, well, let maybe I'm wrong. Let me let me see how does my theory compare to this relaxing sphincter muscles or loosening sphincter muscles. And the more I looked into it, the more everything I was finding supported this new way of looking at it and not the old theory. So, you know, without getting into that, it's all in my books, Fast Track Digestion, Heartburn. Um, and the first book I wrote, Heartburn Cured, which was just kind of a low-carb approach. Second was more of a finessed approach. But all the, the points of those theories are in those, those books. But um, yeah, so it was, and I've been eating that way ever since, watching my carbs and then specifically the, the harder to digest carbs that are more likely to be malabsorbed and then fermented. Mm -hmm. And I've been doing that for 15 years and my reflux is... I'd say almost 100% out of uh, under control. Once in a great while, visiting family, traveling, eating the wrong thing. I'm feeling pretty good, so I start eating too much of the wrong thing. Mm -hmm. Three or four days later, it will catch up to me. So I'm not cured. It mm -hmm. will come back. Mm -hmm. But it's under terribly good control. 
let's put it that way. There's so many questions I want to ask based off what you just said um, about, you know, maybe the difference between acid reflux and heartburn. But I, as a trainer, I want to know, did he lose weight? Did he drop some LBs? <laughs> I, I did, <laughs> although that became uh, secondary. Um, you know, I could use a personal trainer myself, uh, so I'm not working with my son on this anymore. And, and uh, you know, I could work out more. My my uh, my exercise at the moment is if the driveway needs to be shoveled for snow or if the lawn needs to be mowed or I need to put in my organic garden or do a little carpentry around the house. So I, I could do more. <laughs> <laughs> But just for our listeners listening right now, could you distinguish the difference between heartburn and acid reflux? Sure. Well, heartburn is really a symptom, right? They call it heartburn because it's right next to your heart. In fact, if you just feel for your breastbone, mm -hmm. that's where a classic heartburn symptom is. It's burning right behind this breastbone. Mm -hmm. And that's because acid and bile and other things, other stomach content can, contents are, are refluxing past the sphincter and the esophagus doesn't have that same thick mucus protection. Mm -hmm. And so it's sensitive to that. And of course, some people struggle with laryngopharyngeal reflux, which is where they have symptoms of the throat and the vocal cords, the sinuses, eustachian tubes, the, the lungs, aspiration. I talked about my own, my own aspiration reflux. So reflux can cause heartburn, but it can also cause upper um, uh, throat and, and respiratory symptoms as well. Mm -hmm. um, when someone is diagnosed with either heartburn or um, acid reflux and they see their physician, they're usually given like, like what's it, a, a protopump or um, uh, antacids and stuff. You say that they address the symptoms, but they don't actually fix it. Well, what do they do to the human body? Like, how does it make them feel better? Mm. Well, it, it, you know, antacids are going to neutralize any stomach acid that's there at the moment. Mm-hmm but then your stomach will produce more acid. So it's only going to knock down that existing acid for about 45 minutes or an hour. Mm -hmm. So in a way, they're less invasive and safer because your stomach can reacidify. So all of the good things your stomach acid is important for, protecting your intestines from pathogens like Clostridia difficile and all these other bacteria that could you know, cause gastroenteritis, uh, protecting your lungs from bacteria in your own intestines. So it's a, it's a two-way block. Mm -hmm. Pathogens coming in, your own bacteria getting up to your lungs. So the stomach acid's important just from that standpoint. It's important in digestion mm -hmm. and signaling the second stages in digestion, you know, triggering bicarb release in your small intestine, pancreatic enzyme release. So it's got a, a regulatory role, a digestive role, a protective role, and then also it's important for the absorption of some things from your stomach, you know, iron, magnesium, um, the intrinsic factor produced from the same cells that make stomach acid is needed for B12 absorption. Mm -hmm. So when you take away the stomach acid, you know, that explains why there are well-documented long-term health problems with, with acid reducing medicines, especially the proton pump inhibitors because they literally stop these pumps from producing acid. And they, some of them last, you know, uh, up to 24 hours. Mm -hmm. So it's not healthy long-term. Short-term, they're relatively safe. Um, but if you, if you need to be on them permanently, I would really start to think about some other approaches. Mm -hmm. Mainly. So, so, sorry, diet. diet, yeah. So if diet someone and behaviors. Anything you can do to improve your digestion and absorption 
some for some people, and that depends on the underlying causes, right? And in my consultation program, I work with people on this because there's 25 or 30 different things that can feed into these functional GI issues, including reflux. Mm -hmm. And so if you take, if you have like, let's say you have uh, pancreatic insufficiency, you're not producing enough digestive enzymes, taking um, pancreatin or a digestive enzyme may really help. Some people may have problems with their brush border enzymes. And those, even though they're called disaccharidases, double sugars, we're breaking down double sugars, they're also needed for the final breakdown of starches. Mm -hmm. So by looking at these underlying causes, trying to rule most of them out, you can focus in on what's really going on. So in addition to diet, these, these underlying causes, identifying and addressing them is also really critical. Mm -hmm. So some people can digest certain carbohydrates and certain foods and some people can't. Is that usually like there's a disruption going on in their digestive tract or is that just your genetics? That's who you are. Yeah, that, that's really a, a good way you phrase that question. In fact, you half answered it. Right? So uh, lactose intolerance, right? That's, that's a genetic thing. Um, Northern Europeans, very lactose tolerant. They've, they've got the gene that basically... It's a broken gene. It keeps the lactase enzyme turned on into adulthood. For most people, they have the lactase gene turned on when they're, when they're uh, consuming mother's milk. And then as they get older and go on a regular diet that normally wouldn't have a lot of lactose, that gene is shut off. So, um, but other than Northern Europeans, a good portion of the rest of the world's population are lactose intolerant because this gene shuts off in adulthood. So it, each case will be a little different. Um, fructose, uh, there's maybe half the world's population don't absorb fructose very efficiently. And part of that is because of the way the fructose transporter works from the intestines into the bloodstream. It's a passive diffusion of fructose as opposed to glucose, where your body spends energy, ATP, to pump that glucose into your bloodstream. Mm -hmm. But fructose, passive diffusion, uh, the presence of glucose seems to help with the absorption of fructose. But a lot of people are, have difficult, difficulty with fructose and exactly why that is, I'm not completely sure, but it probably has something to do um, with either damage to the intestines or this transporter not working as well and so forth. Mm -hmm. And so you can go right on down the line mm -hmm. with starches. We talked about pancreatic enzymes important for starches, the amylase. There's amylase in your saliva too. And amylase in your saliva, it's a gene copy number thing. Some people don't have as many gene copy numbers. They don't have much salivary amylase. Mm -hmm. Other people have many gene copies. They have 60% of their protein is amylase. We talked about pancreatic insufficiency. And then we talked about the brush border enzymes needed because these amylase enzymes only break down starch to disaccharides and trisaccharides, mm -hmm. two and three sugar units. They can't get into your bloodstream that way until the brush border enzymes break them down fully to glucose. So brush border enzymes uh, give you a problem, you know, you're going to really struggle with starches. So, you know, there's just a few ideas, each one of these sugars, and of course, fibers are not digested or absorbed at all. So those do go into your gut. And if you have trouble with a lot of uh, GI complaints, you may just be consuming too much fiber is, and that's pretty common in, in the athletic community, right? Mm -hmm. Oh, jack myself up on fiber. Well, for some people like me, that would be too much. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the, the fiber is a very hot topic. And, and I want to 
backpedal to fiber in a second but when you're mentioning about locations of where you are is there any um, um, concurrent research or is there any um, proven methods that where you live relates to how well you can digest certain carbohydrates so an example is I've heard if you live close to you know um, uh, the warm climates people who live in warmer areas they can tolerate things like plantains and carbohydrates better than if you live much farther away is there any um, um, is there any facts to that you know, I think I think there is, and I personally um, can't just off the top of my head cite some of those papers. But you know, a friend of mine, uh, Dr. Mike Ruscio, out in Walnut Creek, California, he does a lot of these. Maybe he'll have, come on your show. Uh, I recall him doing a piece on that once. Um, but basically, it makes scientific sense, right? That if you live in a climate with as many more vegetables, you know, nearer the equator. Mm -hmm. um, that you may have been genetically adapted to, to be able to tolerate that diet better. Whereas in, if you live in the northern climates, climates where historically people depended more on, you know, animals and less on plants, you know, um, the mm -hmm. Inuit being the best example, mm -hmm. uh, that it makes sense you would tolerate animal-based foods and, and less uh, plant-based foods. So mm -hmm. it makes sense. I, I just off the top of my head can't cite the papers, but yeah, no worries. I, 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 to it. And now, of course, we've moved all over the place. So yes. um, every we're time a misfit I, for our environment, probably. Essentially, yes. And every time I take a down south trip with, with the family, you know, it's always funny because when you talk to the locals and stuff, I'm, I'm very interested in, in diet and exercise and health. So when I talk to the locals, I ask them questions all the time. What do you eat? I know you're not eating the, you know, the food on the resort. What do you eat for food? And a lot of, you know, in warm climates, it's very carbohydrate dependent. A lot of people are eating a lot of those foods in relation yeah. to, you know, here in here down in Canada or up in Canada, we eat a lot of carbohydrates too, um, but I don't think we digest them and, and metabolize them as well nice. as other countries. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I think you're right. I think there's something to that. And, and of course, me, um, you know, I'm, I'm pot Canadian Indian. Mm -hmm. I'm also uh, Greek and French. But my name, I, I understand, translate to, translates to man of the north. So Ooh. maybe why I don't <laughs> tolerate <laughs> carbohydrates very well. Possibly, possibly. Uh, fun fact for you, I did, um, uh, I went on a very low to no carbohydrate routine. I followed a bit of a carnivore diet before, so nose to tail animal. Uh, I'm very much an experiment kind of person. Yeah, yeah. When did you do this? I did this um, November 2020 until... Okay, recently. Uh, yeah, yeah, I did it for 90 days. 90 oh, days. Wow. So I just got off it not too Strictly long. Strictly carnivore. Yep, nose to tail, nose to tail. Yeah, uh, the, only, the only carbohydrates... Um, oh, oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> organs, liver, yep. connective nice. tissues. Um, the only carbohydrates I had was on the occasional weekend, I have a beer with my wife. Um, nice. And then I, I had like a couple um, social events where I had some some standardized food, and it just knocked me out. Like mm. it wasn't even an abundance. It's when I reintroduced that to my body. But I did I did a carnivore diet just to see what it felt like and stuff. I mean, I was eating salmon roe for breakfast. I was I was consuming about 250 to 300 grams of, of um, protein a day. But wow. most of it wasn't muscle meat. Most of it was organ meat. Yeah. Um, I felt really good. And, you know, I'm a pasty, pasty individual who has never done great with carbohydrates anyway. Mm. I've always felt good mm. until I crash. And then what I found was going into that style, and my body was flexible into ketosis, out of ketosis, I did feel better. I dropped a bunch of weight, which is not a bad thing. Mm. In my sport, I have to be a certain weight class, so I had to kind of back off because I was getting too low in my weight class. But it was very interesting for myself. And yeah. then when I look at my genetics and I look at my family, I was sitting back, I was like, 
I think we all could benefit from a lower carbohydrate diet. Um, so I've been in the shoes before and it was a beneficial for me. Yeah. Yeah, I'd agree with that. And, and I think, you know, there, there's these carnivore Facebook groups and so forth. And, um, you know, it's amazing. They, they, most of them, other than it's kind of maybe a boring diet, sometimes you just all, all meat all the time. But um, one thing they don't tend to complain about is digestive issues. That was much. a big one for me. And I mean, I, I have a naturopath uh, doctor that was following me during this. We got blood work done before and after just to do some comparisons. And the first thing that she said to me, she said, well, Chris, you're not going to have regular bowel movements because of the lack of fiber. And then mm. she was worried about the lack of vitamin C as well. All justifiable reasons. And I said, well, that's why, you know, you're, you're part of this. I want to make sure something bad doesn't happen. And ironically, my bowel movements were best of my life best of my life on a on pretty much a no fiber routine yeah. which i found well, very interesting in your case because you were nose to tail and organ meats and so forth you probably did get a pretty good mix of protein and fats lots of um, fat. yeah. you know that uh, you're probably familiar with that uh stefan whatever's name the arctic explorer uh with two guys ate nothing but meat for a year and they wrote a paper on it in the late 90s mm -hmm. and Early on, and basically the, the the story is, hey, they did great. They were healthy. Everything was, it was amazing. They made it through a year eating meat. Early on, though, um, one of them had chronic diarrhea. Mm -hmm. And he um, figured out that he wasn't getting enough fat in his diet, and that was the cause of it. And it might tie into this kind of idea of rabbit starvation when the Arctic explorers would eat just rabbits. They would they could literally starve on a diet of just protein. You need the fats. Yeah, and that was one of the things that I researched prior. It can't just be the muscle meat. You need to get the fat in there. You got to get some of the organs because that was one of the side effects that I've read upon. You yeah. know, I think the term was explosive diarrhea. So uh, <laughs> when I told the family I was going to try this, I was like, but I don't want this to happen. And I was very lucky. My, I, I did not, I did not go through that uh, process. Yeah. yeah. But, but fiber, how important is fiber and do we over ingest fiber? Yeah. And by the way, um, you get fiber from animals. Uh, a lot of people don't talk about that too much, but uh, I wrote an article, a two-part blog, blog article on resistant starch a few years ago on digestivehealthinstitute.org. And this guy, is nobody knows who he is, but his screen name was Duck Dodgers. Uh, he weighed in and he was having an argument with everybody about how much fiber is in animal-based foods. And especially with the Inuit, he was like this, these fresh kills still, uh, not, not fiber per se, but but sugars and fiber. The mm. fresh kills still have a lot of glycogen. Now that's an easy to digest carb. Uh, but all of the, you know, joints and ligaments and tendons, and, and it ties back to a paper on what, uh, what feeds the gut microbiota of the cheetah. It's mm. kind of a, fa a famous paper. And then it really goes through all the fermentable material in animals. So there is fiber in, in animal based foods. Um, beyond that, I think this this big push on fiber, I th I think it's um, misinformed, uh, even though it's the prevailing idea. You need more fiber because it feeds your microbiota. The problem is we're starving our microbiota. And when we feed the microbiota, they make short chain fatty acids like butyrate that feed our colonocytes. And it's just turned into it's another whole piece of dogma now. Mm -hmm. And people don't challenge it, but I do. Uh, I gave a lecture out in um, Seattle a couple of years ago, one of those SIBOCon summits. 
Um, it's on YouTube. You can find it on YouTube. Uh, but I really kind of dug into fiber a little bit and challenged some of those ideas. Um, you know, when you overfeed microbiota, you have a lot of these symptoms we talked about. But Sorry, also, just when I think of a question, I know someone else will. Could you um, maybe uh, answer what is microbiota versus microbiome? Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. So when I tend to use the word microbiota a lot, because those actually talk about the organisms, these, um, you know, collectively as humans, we have about a thousand species of these and many, many subspecies. So it's incredibly diverse. As individuals, we tend to have about two or 300 of these species. So a little less diverse, not quite the rainforest, but still quite diverse. But microbiota refers to the, the bacteria and the fungi um, and the archaea organisms, um, all these microbes in our gut, the microorganisms themselves, whereas the microbiome refers to the collective of the genes from all these microbes. Okay. So depending on what some people really want to look at the genes, for instance, some studies on elite athletes show that, um, well, yeah, the, the microbiota is more diverse and so forth, but they also look at the microbiome and find that the genes for uh, amino acid metabolism and carbohydrate metabolism and so forth are increased. All of these things are ramped up. So depending on what you're talking about, sometimes you want to talk about the microbiome, the genes, mm -hmm. and other times the microbiota. Good to know. Thank you. Yeah. And then you're saying that um, the fiber debate is the fiber is now feeding these microbiota. Right. And so I find myself just... <laughs> somewhat alone a lot of the time, but there are some other people now um, basically saying uh, the same thing I am, some other experts in the field. But the prevailing idea is that we're starving these microbes in our gut, whereas my feeling has been, and, and, and it's part, partly my perspective, but, but that we're overfeeding our microbiota and that we many of us have an obese microbiota, you might consider it. And it's interesting that studies on functional GI issues. So we've been talking about GERD, but also irritable bowel syndrome, these functional issues. IBS, by the way, is a good one to look at if you look at the research because it's so heavily studied mm -hmm. in terms of the microbiome and the microbiota. Um, but if you look at these functional GI studies on what these microbes are doing, these populations compared to a healthy control, and then you look at studies on obesity compare that to the healthy controls, and then even studies on epilepsy and compare those kids with epilepsy to the healthy controls. And there seems to be a general pattern here of an increase in these Firmicutes type of bacteria. So Clostridia, but also the bacillus and the lactobacillus, um, and a decrease in the Bacteroidetes type of bacteria. So Bacteroides fragilis, the one I used to study when I was at Tufts, uh, Bacteroides theta, iota, omicron, and many others. So, But these two groupings, this is about six or seven of these phyla of organisms in our gut. You can break them into these buckets of seven different buckets. But Bacteroides and, and Firmicutes are really important because they make up up to 90% of the microbes in our gut in these two phyla. And so when they shift, it's kind of a big deal. Mm -hmm. And so in obesity, epilepsy, and functional GI issues, too many of these firmicutes, and they love resist. A lot of these, like uh, Ruminococcus, particular, love resistant starch, mm -hmm. right? And so I'm saying some of this 
you know, fiber and resistance that you got to watch for. They feed on that, make a lot of gas. And the bacteroidetes um, are too low. And a lot of the this happens in more plant-based diets, right? Mm-hmm. And then in these interventional studies where they used, in, in most of these very low-carb or ketogenic diets, this started to shift back more towards the healthy population of more bacteroidetes and less firmicutes. Mm-hmm. So in in functional GI, obesity, and epilepsy, we got the same thing, out of whack microbiota, ketogenic diet restores it. Mm-hmm. So I'm generalizing a little bit there, but I, I just think that's, you know, you can look at these things in terms of the, the genus and species, individual organisms, and I've done that too. But I think it's also important to, to keep in mind these high level changes as well and see what that's telling us. It's safe to say, it sounds like what you're saying is when you have these these bacteria in your digestive system that are not balanced properly, and then they are being overfed, and you see in the populations of people that are also being overfed, that when you reduce that, so you go either lower carbohydrates or probably fast for a certain duration, you can starve these bacteria to then get into more balanced levels. Am I, am I understanding you correctly? Yeah, I, I think that's a perfect way to put it. And I'm glad you brought up some fasting because it's not just what you eat, it's when you eat. Do you leave spaces between your meals? Um, do you ever do fasting? You know, we're talking, what time is it? It's almost noon. I haven't eaten anything since yesterday afternoon. So uh, sometimes I eat one meal a day. Sometimes I'll eat two. Mm-hmm. Um, but we we tend to just eat so often and snack so often. And yeah. so I think that's that's part of the problem. This is a very... Um, uh... This is a very touching topic for me. So I've got my two little boys. They're four and six. In the fitness industry, you know, you're a little on the outside, but in the fitness industry for years, it's always been eat frequent small meals, six yep. meals a day. Always eat, always eat, always eat. And I, yep. I was guilty of doing that as a young man. And as I got older, I started realizing if I eat three times a day, I was I was feeling better than eating six, which was kind of yep. bizarre. I've read yep. a few books, got a little bit of knowledge. So now in, in our family, it's very normal to have three meals a day. And I, I coach and I encourage clients to sometimes even skip a meal. And when, when COVID first hit, because our output of energy was way less, wasn't working, I was sitting at home, I started noticing my body composition changing. What's the first thing I did? I just removed a meal. I increased my fast time, removed a meal. Interesting. My children go to school. When they get to school, the school gives them a snack. Then mid-morning, snack, lunch. Then they have mid-afternoon, snack. Then they go to daycare, snack. My kids will have six meals before 5 p.m. Well, children will, not mine. But I was met with a little bit of resistance with certain people when I talk about this. And I say, children do not need to eat six times a day within a 12-hour window. And I'm glad that you mentioned how fasting can be beneficial. Could you elaborate a little bit more about how it can be beneficial on on, on bacteria, on the digestive system, and on overall health? Yeah, sure. Well, two points there. Um, there hasn't been a lot of studies on fasting and the microbiota. Um, one decent study is a pilot study, but was done by Marlene Riemley, an Austrian researcher who's just outstanding. Um, sure, I can I can send you some of these notes. I'm going to send you a bunch of links anyway. But this I study was done on a group of people that uh, fasted for a week, uh, fasted did they fast for a whole week? I forget, but they fasted over the period of a week and they took their microbiota samples, stool samples before and after. And what she found was that people fasting um, had an increase in diversity in terms of 
the bacteria species kind of considered keystone species that live along the gut lining and are actually considered more important maybe than the, the ones that are with the, the fecal material in the middle, right? Um, Acomensum with cinephila was a huge one, right? But as the name implies, it, it, it can survive just on mucus. A lot of people don't realize this thick mucus coating in our intestines that protects the lining wow. is also a food source for microbes. It's, it's 80% polysaccharide. It includes sulfur moieties and it has nitrogen groups like, like amino acids from proteins. It's a complete food source. Mm-hmm. And bacteria like Acomensa, Mucinophila, and also Fecalibacterium prasnitzii, uh, they can kind of get these nutrients from the mucus and end up uh, cross-feeding the other bacteria. So these lining bacteria are really important. And what she found was that fasting kind of increased the diversity of those populations. Um, but in general, for general terms of health, uh, I'll share an eye-opening book that, that I read recently over the last year is uh, Jason Fung's. He's mm-hmm. up there in Canada, Canada um, Toronto, I think, uh, called The Obesity Code. And he's also yeah. written The Diabetes Code. Yeah. And just eye-opening in terms of, uh, wow, you don't need to eat all the time and you're going to be okay. And it's it's in our genes, you know, and mm-hmm. we didn't always have easy meals as we were trying to survive and and paleolithic times. And, um, you know, there was one guy that didn't, didn't eat a thing for 380 some days, but he was, he weighed 600 pounds to begin with. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. My, my favorite analogy is like where I am in, in Ottawa, Toronto, the city of Toronto is about a five hour drive away. And sometimes when, you know, when I talk to people and they say, well, I need, I need to eat, I need to eat. I'll always say, you know, you could probably walk all the way you could walk 500 miles yeah. and you have enough energy on you to make it. You don't need, you don't need Very to eat. Good. A Very lot of us, yeah, a lot of us are walking around with these uniforms of energy, I like to say. You got a uniform of extra, you got five uniforms on oh, you yeah. right now. So we don't need to eat as frequent as people think. Well, yeah. And Jason makes a good point in his book about that. Um, he said, you know, don't get your hopes up. You're not going to lose weight that fast. Oh, why not? Well, because a half a pound of fat is enough to sustain you for 24 hours. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Very energetic. Mm-hmm. So you could walk to Toronto. <laughs> I probably could from here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So fasting can definitely be uh, important for people's health. I don't think we need to I- ingest all the yeah. time. And, you know, I, so after reading his book, I started experimenting. I think I'm up to about three days. I've, mm-hmm. I've done three days, but typically a 24 or maybe 30 hour fast. Um, I want, I was interested not only in, I did lose some weight, my pants got loose, which was great. Um, just playing around with that. I want to get back into it when I have a chance, but I was also interested in the digestive health aspect of it. What does help happen to our digestive health? And, um, overall I felt great. I did have one issue, um, is that when I fasted for a couple of days, when it was time to eat again, mm-hmm. I was like, oh boy, you know, and I chow down. Well, I was getting soft stools and diarrhea mm-hmm. and, but it wasn't really the fasting so much. It was not very careful refeeding. Mm-hmm. And so, so were you overeating? Did you eat more than normal? Was it over ingesting or did you eat it too fast? Well, you know, the, the amount is kind of a, a little bit, maybe that's a little bit of a research area, right? Because you, the idea of fasting isn't that you're going to consume less calories over time. Mm-hmm but that you're going to go without, and then you're going to maybe consume more. And exactly what that balance is calorically, I don't know. I'm still kind of studying this myself and on my own body. 
Uh, but I do think I was breaking some of the recommendations for refeeding. And as I was just like, okay, I'm hungry. I didn't just go to town. Mm-hmm. Whereas there, there are recommendations like um, maybe a little broth first and, you know, you get move into it gradually. But when you haven't eaten in a couple of days, you're like, oh boy, I'm, I'm ready. <laughs> you don't want to take your time. <laughs> you, you need to though. Yeah. yeah. And I wasn't. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, fasting definitely can be beneficial for a lot of people. And if you haven't tried it, everyone's listening right now, skip a meal, see what happens. Um, it's interesting yeah. you say that it, it, it affected your digestive system slightly different. Um, anytime yeah. I've, I've ever done fasting or to skip meals, I, I never notice any negative side effects, but my diet's kind of simple. Like there's not a lot of crazy stuff going on over here when I yeah. eat. And, and that's a that's a good thing for you. You know, so I, I mean, I work with a lot of clients. And remember, we talked about the obese microbiome, right? And mm-hmm. people with functional GIs, just like GERD or IBS. But it's interesting because a lot of these people with these digestive health issues, they may have the obese microbiome. They're, they're malabsorbing a lot of carbs. They're overfeeding these bacteria. Mm-hmm. But they themselves are losing weight and underweight. And I work with a lot of people. I tend to use fasting frequently as a tool. There's another tool, watching the carbs, fasting, watching the fermentable carbs, kind of the fast track diet approach and what's Mm -hmm. in the app and the books. But also with people that are very underweight, I have to be careful because when you're very underweight and and I work with, you know, plenty of women that are under a hundred pounds and they're really worried and and Mm -hmm. for good reason um, that you need, you can't, you taking some tools off the table. You can't just say, oh, you know, you should fast for a couple of days. That's not a good idea at all. Mm-hmm. So, but I do, even in those underweight cases, I still push the meal spacing because there is this migrating motor complex, it's called. It's a coordinated muscular movement along the entire digestive tract, but especially in the intestines. And, and this muscular contraction coordination takes about five mm-hmm. hours moving the microbes and the partially digested food along mm-hmm. takes five hours to complete one cycle. And so you complete one of those cycles when you sleep at night. But I encourage people to have at least one five hour break during the day where you don't consume anything but water because anything but water will interrupt this migrating motor complex. Mm-hmm. So if, even for somebody underweight, I think that's a good thing to do. But maybe, you know, you need to try to really address the digestive problems. What's going on? Why can't they absorb the nutrients? Is it based on their diet or their physiology? And you need to identify and address those underlying problems. And then when they start to gain weight, you start to put more tools on the table, too, that you can use. Mm-hmm. That's a great takeaway for the listeners and, and myself. Uh, I've always kind of thought of, you know, in the gym, you need to work out optimally. And sometimes too much exercise is not good for you and too little. And I think what I'm hearing you say is it's similar with the way we digest food. If you eat too frequently and not have any rest periods, it's like exercise. Sometimes you need to rest to allow things to to work more functionally. Am I right to say that? Yeah, that is a really good point. In fact, um, you just made me think about something. You know, the, uh, the study, and you're probably more familiar with some of these than I am, the study of elite athletes and their microbiome um, is fascinating. And also, there was a systematic review of a gastrointestinal syndrome associated with extreme exercise. So on the one hand, working out, and and of course, a lot of these studies were done in um, professional cyclists, marathon runners, 
and there was a study done in I think it was Irish rugby players, whatever okay. too. So <clears throat> most of the news, when they look at elite elite athletes and either compare them to lay people or um, uh, uh, novice athletes, mm-hmm. they most of the news is good when you consider the micro um, biome and the microbiota. Uh, they have an increase in diversity, right? They have an increase in um, a whole variety of these microbes, including Acamensa mucinophila. That's the mucin one we talked about. Mm-hmm. Villanella, which is a fabulous story. We should really try to talk about that one. Um, Prevotella bacteridides, methane brevibacter, smithii, the one that makes the methane. And so in general, there's, there's an increase in diversity, increased in uh, amino acid and carbohydrate metabolism. It's all good stuff in these kind of keystone species, right? That's all good. And the best one of all is this, um, we talked about Villanella. It's called Villanella atypica is the strain. Uh, Some mostly Harvard researchers uh, some years ago started looking at the microbiota, the stool samples of Boston Marathon runners. (laughs) And so these people, you know, work, run and run and run. They start to build up, you know, lactic acid in their muscles. Well, one of the bacteria they recovered from them is called this Villanella atypica. And we all have Villanella bacteria. In fact, it's one of the major bacteria in a small intestine. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a really interesting organism because most lactic acid bacteria in a small and large intestine, they ferment sugars and produce lactic acid. And we, when we're running and running and running, we produce lactic acid in our muscles, mm-hmm. bacteria produced in our gut. Well, this Villanella has taken advantage and it doesn't ferment carbohydrates. What it does is it breaks down the lactate to propionate using the TCA cycle, if you're interested in the, in the metabolic pathway there. But um, so in TCA cycle, it's aerobic. And so in the, in the small intestine, there is a little bit of oxygen to do that. Mm-hmm. Takes the lactate, makes propionate. And what they found is a, an increase in this or, or uh, the appearance of this particular species, Villanella atypica, from the stool samples of elite runners. And they believe that this is giving them an advantage. The lactate that builds up in your muscles travels throughout your system. It's actually absorbed into the gut where these Villanella break it down to propionate. And propionate is an energy source for us. It's a short chain fatty acid that gives us energy. Mm. They took this bacteria, isolated it, grew it. So they gave it to mice like a probiotic Mm -hmm. and they could run longer on the treadmill. I was just about to ask, can you supplement with this? (laughs) And, and they filed a bunch of patents and you, you will be seeing a Villanella atypica um, probiotic supplement for um, athletic performance from isolated from athletes. It's just an amazing story. So um, I wanted to make sure I put that one out there. You know, I after we get done, I'm going to send you some stuff with some links to all of this in case you want to share it with your Absolutely. peeps. Absolutely. Yeah, they do. Um, some good reading. It's exciting. Mm-hmm. The only downside um, that you have to be a little careful for is there was a, um, a systematic analysis, a bunch of papers on problem digestive problems with athletes that really push the envelope Mm -hmm. and what they found i just had a couple of notes here on that was an increase in intestinal injury uh permeability endotoxemia that's when gram negative bacteria get into the bloodstream and they have this endotoxin 
uh, impaired gastric emptying, slowed GI transit. And one of the topics we've spent a lot of time on today, nutritional malabsorption. Mm-hmm. But these were in athletes really pushing the envelope. There's one uh, value here is greater than two hours at 60% of V max, uh, V oxygen max. VO2 so max, yeah. you probably know better than I, that's a lot mm-hmm. of activity, right? And mm-hmm. heat stress could be a factor. Mm-hmm. Um, the good news was that the damage seems to be preventable, mm-hmm. right? Once they stop, but it's just, I think people that are really pushing it, um, it's something for them to keep in mind if they, and I've worked with a couple of athletes with digestive health issues. And so we started digging into some of these areas. Um, and there was another follow-up study, small study, but they found that it was only a 24 hour thing they tested, but they found that fermentable carbohydrates would make it worse. Mm-hmm. So that feeds into what we're talking about, right? Too many carbs, yep. digestive problem, especially in people that are really pushing the envelope on performance. Mm-hmm. We'll find um, in the in the in the performance world when someone is pushing too far, non-nutrition specifics. We look at things like if they're overtraining, they're not recovering, so they have an increased amount of muscle soreness throughout the body. Their sleep patterns are off. Mm-hmm. Um, their digestion, so their bowel movements are completely different, mm-hmm. and they lose weight. So we yeah. might see sometimes some athletes come and they're like, "My body weight's just going down, going down, going yeah. down." And the go-to like is always, "Well." try to eat more, try to eat more. But it sounds like what you're saying is if we're pushing more carbohydrates or, or types of foods on these people and they're not absorbing them anyway, it's only going to make things worse. Yeah. So well put and good said. You know, the only thing we haven't talked about with this whole idea, right, is that um, I, my default for people's digestive health is watch the carbs, increase the fat, increase the protein, you know, skip some meals, paleolithic. That's my mantra, right? Mm-hmm. But that's people we now know with cyclists and runners, endurance athletes, they can keto adapt. Yeah. And they just, and you have endless, as you said, endless amounts of fat on your body, mm-hmm. right? So for that type of thing, it works perfect. But for a sprinter or people doing other competitive sports and they're like, you know, I don't, whatever you say, I'm a cob loader. That's what I need to do. Right. Mm-hmm. And so for those folks, and, and I've worked with some of them as well, um, that's where the principles of the fast track diet book and the app come in handy because um, I am an advocate of lower carb diets. But in this book, because I looked at which carbohydrates were easy to digest versus hard to digest, there are some options for carb loaders, whether you're a construction worker or you know somebody that does sprinting, mm-hmm. you can carb load with things like uh, dextrose, um, which is powdered glucose, um, you know, jasmine or sushi rice. Mm-hmm. And the reason is this FP calculation that's based on the glycemic index flags foods that have a high glycemic index. They're absorbed into your bloodstream very quickly. Mm-hmm. So don't eat too many of them if you don't want diabetes. Mm-hmm. But if you are cob loading and you have digestive health issues, some of those make good options to include with your meals. Mm-hmm. But I, I typically recommend people, you know, um, have like a half cup serving of like, Asian sushi rice. I can eat it all day. It's it's great. I don't get heartburn. But if I eat too much, mm-hmm. that's the you know even that I don't have a, a d- digest as well. But I think for carb loading people, there are some options. Red potatoes are easier to digest and more quickly absorbed, mm-hmm. and you can help with digestive enzymes. Eating really slowly and chewing really well mm-hmm. give that amylase in your saliva more time because you don't know how much of it you have. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of little tricks you can do. 
if you want to introduce more carbs in your diet, but just of course be aware of the blood sugar issues and too. I don't want to be, um, I don't want to encourage people to do things that could tip their blood sugar too much out of balance. It's so funny, about an hour before you and I were chatting, I was speaking to my sister and she told me her dog has been diagnosed with diabetes. Uh, <laughs> she's got a little wiener dog and she's like, yeah, it needs insulin. They're putting too many carbs in the pet that, food. I, that's what I, I wanted to tell her. I was like, well, what are you feeding that dog? You know, I don't think animals just wake up one day with diabetes. Yeah. Um, so some athletes you're saying are, are very flexible. They can go ketogenic if they're in endurance space, but if they're an anaerobic athlete or they're more power, stop, go, right. stop, go, sprinter style, they're going to need carbohydrates. And in your fast track diet, you break down fast digesting, slow digesting via the, the, the glycemic index, which you call it, what do you say it was an FP? Yeah. So the, the, I mean, I was really struggling, uh, you know, Mike Eads, we became friends when I sent him a copy of my book, he agreed with it. And so we started, we were both living in Southern California. So he gave me the idea. He said, well, because I had written one, hey, low carb, you know, for, yeah. for heartburn. And he said, well, wh what carbs? Which ones are the worst? You know, he's a very inquiring mind. And so mm -hmm. he asked that question. It took me two years to answer that. Because how do you compare a pear to an apple or um rice-based pasta to wheat pasta. How do you how do you know what's in those and which one's which? Mm -hmm. And so it took me a long time and I finally figured out the glycemic index is telling us how quickly these carbohydrates from any food go into the bloodstream, out of the intestines into the bloodstream relative to glucose, which is mm -hmm. the control because glucose is quickly absorbed as we discussed. And so it took me a long time to figure this out, but I finally reasoned that I could, I could re-engineer the glycemic index equation to instead of being so focused on how quickly carbs enter the bloodstream is how many carbs are staying behind relative to glucose. And so I rearranged the equation. And, and so it's, uh, let's see, FP equals um, 100 minus the glycemic index parentheses over 100, and then separately plus dietary fiber and any added sugar alcohols. Because dietary fiber and sugar alcohols are not included in the glycemic index equation. Mm -hmm. So that's FP in, in the units are uh, grams. So for any food, you can calculate this. But of course, um, in the Fast Track Diet mobile app, there's like 1,100 foods already populated. And, and if you pick one of these foods and say, I'm going to have three quarters of a cup, it will already, it will calculate the FP points. And so you know how many of these fermentable grams are in your diet. And as a rule of thumb, you can just think of how carbs, uh, not absorbed carbs, the ones that are persisting and feeding the microbes, how much gas can they produce? And it turns out 30 grams of unabsorbed carbohydrates, just a little over an ounce. Um, well, if you're in, you're in Canada, maybe you like thinking in grams. 30 <laughs> grams of carbohydrates can allow bacteria to produce 10 liters of hydrogen. So, Bacteria can produce a lot of gas from just a very small amount of carbs. Mm -hmm. And so when the, you do these FP points and you say, okay, well, uh, wow, okay. So when I figure this out, my lunch with some zucchini squash and a little bit of rice and then some fish and this and that, um, my FP points for that meal are going to be 10 grams. Okay, well, that's actually 3.3 liters of hydrogen that these bacteria in my gut are going to be producing. Now your body is managing these gases in all yeah. kinds of different ways, subject for another day. <laughs> but it just gives you a feeling of, it doesn't take that many carbs, which is why I recommend people with 
that are really having a lot of symptoms knock down these FP points to about um, 25 a day. And some people on our Facebook group, right, the Fast Track Diet Facebook group, people, people should go join it. It's 11,000 people chatting this stuff up. Right. They're telling us I had to go to 15. Somebody else says I had to go to 12 a day for a while. Mm-hmm. They're, they're telling us they had to go lower than what we we're saying. And we're in a big clinical study with a teaching hospital, and we purposely lowered these points in, in the diet and reprinted the diet book for the study based on what these people are telling us. So this is such a two-way street. We're learning from them. This is such fascinating information that you're presenting here. Um, there's so many you know ways to eat. And in my field, I'll interact a lot of times with you know, vegetarians and vegans. Um, and all of a sudden, I'll say, "How how's your gas? And a lot of them are very gassy. And I was always like, that doesn't sound right. It sounds to me like uh, an abundance amount of gas in your body. First off, no one wants to invite you to dinner, right? Uh, <laughs> but second off, it doesn't sound like you digest your food very well. Uh, I'm, I'm correct to say that, right? If you're, if you're gassy all the time, you're not, things well, aren't working well. You know, vegetarians, this is an, again, probably a talk for a different day, but vegetarians, um, you know, there's a belief that it's ethical, I don't eat animals, and it's healthy. And, and the body's so good at using whatever fuel source you get it, give it that with these long-term observational studies, you can't, it's hard to tell the health of one from the other. Mm-hmm. Getting rid of processed foods, both of them might be pretty healthy. And there are certainly many people that are able to process all of these plant foods mm-hmm. well and be healthy with it. Um, but in, in these plant foods are foods are a lot of these complex carbohydrates. And unlike animal-based foods, when you're on your animal diet, you can do most of the job yourself. Your microbes will help. You, you don't absorb all the protein. Some of it's unabsorbed and bacteria need that. They need the amino acids, the, the nitrogen from it. Um, some of your fats get malabsorbed. And there are some bacteria that can use fat for energy in your gut too. Something I learned a couple of years ago from some smart microbiologists that tested this. Um, but the carbohydrates, right? The complex carbohydrates requires an extensive collaboration between your own digestion and your microbes, because there's lots of them that you just don't digest or digest well. And so if that relationship with a healthy population of gut microbes and your own digestion, if it's not in perfect balance, the plant based folks get into a lot of trouble. So I work with a lot of vegetarians. Mm. Um, it's more challenging. It's it, I can do it. And I have recommendations for for plant based people. But you have to really get into the fine points more you, you you're more into dietary supplements to improve digestion and all of these behaviors we talked about There's a whole slew of these behaviors that optimize digestion. All of these things are more important for people plant-based people that are having problems. Mm-hmm. So I don't want to poo-poo them. Many people are fine on a plant-based diet, but but many of them do need some some help as well. Yeah, <clears throat> that, that uh, explanation is, is, I appreciate that explanation because you, what you're saying is it's not bad. It's not good. It's for the individual. We got to yeah. figure out what does that individual need. So I always like to have the listeners, I always like to leave them with a few takeaways. And yeah. I think you gave a handful of, uh, so far, but I was wondering if you could say, a couple takeaways for someone to, to leave with and understand if their digestion is not well, these are things to look for. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. Well, um, right. A couple of things. Um, and, and one is, re- remind me to get into stool testing in a minute. We'll pick okay. that one up later. But um, 
first of all, when people are having significant symptoms and, and digestive distress, um, constant belching, bloating, heartburn, cramping, altered bowel habits, um, they still want to use their body as a barometer. Oh, wow. I ate that, uh, you know, um, I ate that meat and uh, that ground beef and oh my God, it's, I'm just intolerant to it. It must be histamine. It's a beef. Um, or I, I ate some pepperoni and um, these pepperoni are killing me. They want to assign the blame to these foods, but there's a couple of reasons why that's challenging. First of all, when you're in the throes of digestive health issues, your body is a terrible barometer because you have symptoms all the time. You don't know what's, which, one, which food is causing it. Um, the other thing is we eat a lot of things in mixed meals. You eat a pizza and you're like, oh, that pastrami is killing me. Okay, well, did you even consider that wheat-based crust with all the resistant starch in it? Mm -hmm. And the and dairy with, all, with the six you know, cheeses on top. Yeah. <laughs> so mixed meals, your body's not a good barometer when you're having a lot of symptoms. And then one more point about that. Complex carbohydrates ferment by bacteria at different rates. We talked about lactose intolerance earlier, right? somebody's lactose intolerant and they drink a latte, they may have a hard time getting home to the bathroom in time because lactose, if you don't have lactase and you don't digest the lactose, bacteria can ferment this lactose really quickly. It's, it's lactose and a glucose, it's a disaccharide. Cut it in half, the bacteria cut it in half, they use it. It's very quickly fermented, metabolized, and produced gas, and, and which, if it's a lot of hydrogen, can alter your bowel habits, give you soft stools, diarrhea. There are many other much more complex fibrous and even resistant starch carbohydrates that, um, uh, you know, some of the toughest ones being like cellulose, hemicellulose. They take a long time for bacteria to really get breaking down and fermenting because it's a collaborative process. One bacteria might have an, en uh, an enzyme that breaks that bond. Another one can break these two bonds. Other one, and they work collaboratively and they nip in away at this thing. And finally they build up a head of steam and you start having symptoms, but it's something you ate last night mm -hmm. and you're blaming the bacon you just ate. Yeah. So that's yeah. another reason. So, so that's a point that I would say for people with, that are really in the throes, it is good to work with somebody that can look through some scientific lenses to help sort this out, to get to the point where they're, they have a baseline and they don't have symptoms, and then their body is a better barometer, as well as considering these concepts of it might not be the thing you just ate, maybe something you ate before, mixed meals. Um, the other thing I'd add to that is um, diagnostics. A lot of people are really, you know, big on these breath tests now for IBS and SIBO. They think they might have SIBO. They want to do the breath test. There's a lot of controversy over that. There's, uh, you know, there's mixed results, how reproducible it is. It, it could, uh, in some cases, represent rapid transit. And so I like the breath test if somebody may have, if somebody has extensive constipation and we want to know if they're making a lot of methane, which is mm -hmm. a constipating gas <clears throat> produced by these archaea organisms. By the way, these archaea are... Uh, increased in athletes. So if you're an athlete with constipation, again, you might want to look at the methane levels. But a test that I really like is, uh, and there's a couple of good ones out there, but they're comprehensive um, stool analyses. 
And so the, you get a stool sample and a company like, for instance, Genova has a GI effects test. Um, and it will look at uh, an enzyme called elastase, which is produced in the pancreas, but it's a very tough enzyme. So it survives in a stool sample. Mm. But what it's, your elastase levels are really telling you is how is your pancreas doing? Because your pancreas also produces lipase for fats, protease for proteins, and amylase, a key enzyme for starch. So you get a good read on your pancreas. It will tell you how many of these different short chain fatty acids. It will tell you if you have pathogens like pathogenic E. coli. You could, you, sorry, you could take this test and figure out what you digest well based on what you produce. Is that right? Like if you produce a lot of amylase, you well, do better with carbohydrates. I don't know if it's that fine of a view or it's just going to be, okay, I can eat this and that, but, but you will get a sense, especially if you work with somebody that's really, you know, has a lot of expertise at understanding what these populations are telling you, um, how many short chain fatty acids, how many fibers, animal and plant-based fibers or fat particles are in, in your, uh, are not being fully digested and absorbed, mm -hmm. um, your commensal populations. Um, and a lot of these studies, I'm going to send you these links, even for some of them we didn't talk about, but the, that these looked at and wow, I have more of this and less of that. Why is that? What does it mean? Like Prevotella, that's in um, uh, elite athletes have more Prevotella, but that tends to be more of a plant-based organism. Um, mm. It's a Bacteroidetes, which you think of with animal-based diets, but it's a unique one, um, Prevotella species that increase in people that have a lot of fiber and a lot of plant-based um, uh, so if you have a lot of that, um, you might say, okay, well, am I having a lot of symptoms? Maybe I am getting a little too much of this, you know, fermentable material. Mm -hmm. So anyway, the, the, uh, there's a lot to talk about with the stool testing, but it is a, just a really fabulous tool to really get in and look at the nitty gritty. You mentioned that it's good for an expert who has some background in some of this stuff here to work with someone in these scenarios. You you are that expert. As we end well, today's episode, I was just wondering, could you tell people, you know, because you do virtual consultation consultations, right? Um, could you tell people you know, who who you work with, who would want to work with you, and how they can work with you? Oh, sure. So, um, well, they can always contact us through digestivehealthinstitute.org. Mm -hmm. uh, links to everything is there. They can see all of our peeps and what's going on on the Fast Track Diet uh, official Facebook group. Uh, a lot of people there. I jump on there when I get a chance. Um, so the consultation tab is there. It will have some testimonials of people I've worked with. Um, but yeah, I work with people uh, with, and there's a whole list of these mm -hmm. things I, I work with, but people with, you know, weight loss or weight gain, you know, people that want to gain weight. People mm -hmm. that want to lose weight, but probably more people that want to gain weight that are underweight because they're not digesting and absorbing their food well. The whole range of functional GI issues, GERD, IBS, absolutely. Laryngopharyngeal reflux is a is a persistent pesky problem that a lot of people have. It's surprising. And it's uh, it's a subtle but difficult condition. When your throat's really irritated. You feel like you have a lump in your throat. Like, doc, there's a lump in my throat. They'll put a scope down there like, we don't see anything. Oh, it's there. Look again. I have a lump in my throat. It's just it's debilitating. It drives people crazy. So, but again, it's a reflux related um, issue. So yeah, I work with a lot of people. I um, uh, only take about three appointments a day because most of my work is putting together very detailed written recommendation based yeah. on their test results, on medicines they're taking, everything I can get out of them in a one hour consult. Mm -hmm. And then behind the scenes, putting together just 
copious amounts of note on diet, behavior, medicines, and analyzing their their supplements. Um, so, you know, it's something I love doing, um, but I do, you know, I, I take on about nine of these a week, <laughs> nine <laughs> sessions a week. Well, we know that, you know, everybody eats every day. So that if you're not eating your food, you're not digesting your food well, you're going to be doing it the rest of your life. You might as well find something that can help you do it. So you're yeah. doing phenomenal work. And if you're a personal trainer listening to this right now, and we need our referral networks. We need our mm-hmm. experts to help our clients that are outside of our scope. So I'm very appreciative that you, you came on today. Mm-hmm. And um, I just want to know, besides working with people, What's upcoming? What's new? Are you working on a new book? Are you working on any research studies? What's going on for 2021? Yeah, <laughs> yeah too many things. Um, and redoing my bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, I'm working on uh, two, two books. One is on um, a dysbiosis. So there, we talked a little bit about SIBO today, but it turns out there's some very good research that, that dysbiosis is much more complex than we thought. And SIBO is one of those things, an overgrowth of bacteria in the small intestine. There's also what I'm calling, loosely calling LIBO, large intestinal bacterial overgrowth. And it's based on studies of John Hopkins and another organization, a couple of studies using smart pill technology that show that IBS populations, and so likely GERD and other related conditions, they have an overgrowth of bacteria in the cecum and ascending colon, the early part of the large bowel and it might be more significant than the SIBO. So SIBO, there's LIBO. Uh, Satish Rao down University of Georgia, he's been working on CIFO, small mm-hmm. intestinal fungal overgrowth. And then they, uh, uh, Mark Pemintel, uh, Sinai, and, and another group uh, on this consensus document last year came out and broke out EMO separately with intestinal methanogen overgrowth. These are these archaea organisms that make methane, which can lead to constipation. That's been broken out as its own condition. So, um, you know, the book I was uh, putting together some info for was is going to look at all these different forms of, of dysbiosis. Uh, so that's one thing. And then also we're working on a fast track diet um, recipe or, you know, cookbook. Oh, nice. A little cookbook there. Oh, oh very- yeah. And very yeah. Cool. Mm-hmm. Um, ju- just lastly, you mentioned multiple times how you eat your food and, and, mm. and chewing slowly can affect mm. your digestion. I would like to have you on again. I would like to talk about how the brain can affect digestion. Because mm. okay. I think that, that the combination of the two could mess a few things up or make things better. Am I right to say? Yeah. Well, I'll have to do some homework for that one, but sure. <laughs> <laughs> just lastly, I would just like to, to thank you um, officially for coming on the podcast here. And um, it was very beneficial for all the viewers that were listening, uh, personal trainers, strength conditioning coaches, fitness enthusiasts. Um, so I'll send off with, you know, stay positive in life and stay negative in COVID. Ah, great. <laughs> thank you very much, Chris. Thank great you so much, Dr. Norm. Never stop Thanks. learning because life never stops teaching. If you've learned at least one thing from this podcast and your mission is to help other people, please share this podcast with them. And a reminder, we'll be releasing one episode every Monday for the entire year. So make sure to hit subscribe so you get the updated information as soon as possible. Today is the first day of the rest of your life. And thank you so much for allowing me to be part of it.